I'm Sarah Williamson, and this is Going Long with FCLT Global. On this show, you'll learn what it means to be long-term from the top minds in global business and investing. Leaders from companies and investment organizations join us to discuss how they are leading their teams for the long run on issues including capital allocation, risk management, climate change, and sustainability. To learn more, visit our website at fcltglobal.org. My guest today is Mary Prishlak. Mary is a Senior Managing Director, Partner, and Head of Investment Research at Wellington Management. As Head of Investment Research, Mary oversees an investment group comprised of Wellington's investment research team spanning equity, credit, macro, technical, sustainable, and ESG. Wellington is well known as a long-term investor and, of course, is a member of FCLT Global. So, Mary, thank you for being here today. Thank you, Sarah. It's great to see you. So you've been working on this Future Themes project, and Wellington has done um, this for a number of years, where Future Themes encourages investors to look past the current headlines, to, to try to find trends that will shape the market and society and the economy over the following five to 10 years. So we know it's hard for investors to get out of the daily quarterly news cycle how do you do this? How do you encourage this long-term thinking? Can you tell us a little bit about how, how you use future themes? Sure, Sarah. So it, it's a great question. And it, it's something that we actually do spend a lot of time thinking about given we believe long-term thinking is really the key differentiator in generating sustained alpha over time. It's actually a hallmark of, of the firm. So our future, uh, future themes project was one very deliberate way for us to encourage our investors to really lift up and look out into the future. It was designed to create a safe space for anyone in the firm, regardless of function or geography, to, to really just share their ideas and help the firm take a big step back from this gravitational pull of the day-to-day -day price changes of the market and really think big. Um, everyone around the world and across the firm really do rally around this idea of thinking big. The idea of looking beyond our normal time horizons and stretching the boundaries of what we think is possible, you know, considering a wider than normal range of potential outcomes, debating and testing norms and, and thinking create, creatively about potential structural changes for businesses and, and the world generally, really forces us to think about the future. So it's exciting and it does help really connect our day-to-day -day work with the longer-term changes in the world and to society. Hopefully the power of long-term thinking from our future themes work is clear. It's, it's critical that we set a long-term research agenda, that we set it early and we keep it fresh with creative and long-term thinking. It's not, it's not to make really accurate predictions about the future. Um, as you can imagine, the themes have been fairly wide ranging, including geopolitics to the macroeconomy, social change to tech innovation, from climate change to extraterrestrial exploration and everything in between. So the effort and the resources we commit sends a pretty strong message that this type of creative long-term thinking and cognitive diversity is not only culturally important to Wellington, but we believe it's pretty powerful in helping our clients think about and be positioned for the future. So how do you actually do that? You said every function around the world, every region around the world, how do you get the, how, how do you get all these ideas, uh, put them together, distill them down to a few things and rather than just having a, a collection of, of thoughts? 
Well, yeah, it's 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 quite an undertaking, but but we do do it. And I, I guess I should start by saying that um, this endeavor is something that we have done about every seven years um, on average, roughly every seven years. So this past this past um, year, we had we did encourage all twenty eight hundred employees to participate. Um, we received ideas from all functional groups and all offices globally. In total, we had close to 650 creative ideas proposed. And then after analyzing all the ideas, we did use data analysis tools of our iScience group to identify a series of themes for deeper analysis. So we were actually able to map all of the 650 ideas into these four broad themes, sustainability, science, society, and systems. That really formed the foundation of the project where we assigned then research resources and brought in external experts to help us deepen our knowledge and, and think through all of these issues. Um, ultimately, the team ended up sharing their insights back to the wider Wellington community so we can um, absorb that as well. So you said you've done this every seven years. How um, how how long has this been going on? How did the project start? Um, what there there's there is a history here, right? <laughs> Definitely. Um, so it's interesting that the Future Themes project has been alive and well for over forty years. Um, the idea really emanated back in 1981 when Bob Doran and Jean Tremblay, two of our founding partners. We're trying to understand some of the big changes that were unfolding around the world. So they really challenged the firm to think boldly, provocatively, and most importantly, long term. If you think about the time, you know, international investing was really just beginning to take off. And Wellington at the time was pretty small. We had about 200 employees or so. And, and our, our roots were really focused in the U.S., so this project really did help us think creatively, long-term and more globally. Um, some of those big themes in that first project focused on themes like Japan's economic progress, political disruptions in Eastern Europe, and imagine this, potential implication of IBM's newly invented PC. Um, over the subsequent 40 years, much has changed at Wellington. You know, we've become more global, our workforce has gotten younger and more diverse, and all this has had an impact on the types of themes that we see coming through this project today. So while it was initially conceived as an internal research project, we do use it to engage with clients to help continue fostering that long-term thinking. And what would you think if Bob Dorn and Jean Tremblay looked at this today, they'd be really surprised by um, all these years later? Well, I think they might be surprised by our use of you know, natural language processing and cluster analytics to identify patterns and relationships between the themes. Uh, we have been employing some new tracking techniques to, to measure the popularity of themes in the marketplace. You know, one of the ideas of future themes is that you, know, you, you do wanna be thinking non-consensus um, and so, understanding how a theme is popular in the market is important. Um, you know, we have, as I mentioned, engaged with external experts to help deepen our, our insights. Um, and in some cases, you know, we have allowed our strategic partners and clients to, to get involved in the research projects as well. So those, those are just some of the, the ways in which Future Themes has evolved over 40 years. And as you think back um, over some of these prior iterations, 
what what have been some of the most critical insights that that have later become important? Well, that's a great question. Um, having run this project for so long, we actually have a data set of almost 1500 thematic ideas. As you can imagine, with a data set this big and running this project for as long as we have, we have our fair share of both hits and misses. Now, you asked the question about which ones have been prescient and, and led to critical insight. So I'm going to focus on the hits. Um, you know, in, in 1981, one of the questions we grappled with really focused on China. Um, they were moving more towards becoming a capitalist state, and we really wanted to know what they needed to be successful and, and what they would produce. The actual theme was, you know, China is moving towards becoming a capitalist state. What do they need and what, are they, what will they produce? This was eight years before Tiananmen Square and 20 years before their entry into, into WTO. In 1988, we began research on the importance of prescription cholesterol control drugs thinking that they will start to become more widely used. This was eight years before Lipitor was launched and 15 years before it became the highest selling pharmaceutical in history. In 1999, we started to talk about the internet. The, the, the theme was the internet requires change and adaptation and has the potential for spreading fraudulent and misleading information. This was seven years before Twitter was launched. And then uh, the last one I'll highlight is in 2011, um, would you believe one of our themes was the 30 year tide of deregulation and globalization and peace amongst the superpowers will go into reverse. Globalization measures have yet to regain their pre-GFC levels. And this idea came seven years before the most recent US-China trade war talk. So these four themes really highlight the hallmark of our Future Themes project, where our goal is to set our research agenda early, start the debate and discussion on important and potentially disruptive changes. So you said those were some of the hits. Can you share some of the misses too? We all know that a good investor is right only, only a little bit more than half the time. What are some, what are some good misses? So uh, yes, you're right, Sarah. As investors, we, we certainly are wide of the mark on um, some of our themes. So just to give you a flavor for some areas where, where we, we didn't hit the bid, um, we talked about at one point the dangers of the Walkman on hearing and social stability. If you have you know, headphones in your ears all the time, is it gonna impact your hearing? Well, if, if you just look around today, you can see the world um, we, we did not lose our hearing as a result of, of the Walkman. Um, another, a, another theme that we had talked about in 2011 was, you know, was there a chocolate shortage that will cause Switzerland and Belgium to become allies and invade the Ivory Coast? That, that, didn't, um, that didn't happen. And the other two um, themes I would just share is the, the end of scheduled television we talked about in 2004 and space tourism in, in 1999. So we've had our fair share of both hits and misses for sure. Well, maybe maybe those eventually are, are coming true, the, the last two at least. Um, so, so moving to this year, you've got four themes, as you mentioned, sustainability, systems, society, and science, four S's. Um, sustainability is clearly integral to long-term investing. We talk at FCLT about um, supporting a long-term sustainable economy. 
so um, how do you think the, um, the key insights on sustainability can be applied by long-term investors and companies um, in, their, in their own thinking, their own decision-making? What are some of those insights? Yeah, well, I, I guess I would start out by saying that I think it's almost impossible to overestimate how important sustainability is and how critical it is for long-term investors and companies to incorporate into their thinking. Now, that wasn't the question you asked, but you might ask me, why, why do I say that? And if I can just use Wellington and our Future Themes Project as an example, um, I, I would start out by saying, you know, 50% of the themes that were submitted this year were related to sustainability. And this speaks to the fact that it's top of mind for many, but in particular, we saw it really resonate with our young and dynamic workforce. Those whose values are inherently different from, dare I say, myself, the, old, the older generations, um, they're the ones I think that are really driving this change. And so when you think about the future and the role that these individuals are playing in, in the investment world, it's clear that this trend is not going away. And it isn't just enough to do research. As an organization, we really need to help companies and clients bring profits, progress, and purpose into focus. This is a long-winded way of me saying that you incorporating sustainability is not a nice to have, but it's a need to have given how ingrained it is in, in the younger generation. So we have been doing a lot of work on how markets can fund a sustainable transition and, and different climate solutions. Um, I, I would be remiss not to mention that our partnership with Woodwell is, is really foundation to how we think about physical risk. They've really helped us understand risks associated with heat, drought, wildfire, water scarcity, air quality, and hurricanes, just to name a few. Now, you, you asked a question and I have yet to really answer it. Um, let, let me shift there now. We, we did have work streams on both climate migration and water scarcity. In our study on climate-induced migration, we explored drivers, um, range of economic and political impacts, and potential near and long-term investment implications. If you're in the US and you live in a coastal state, you likely have a pretty deep appreciation, particularly if you're in Louisiana or Mississippi right now, for the issues of, of somebody um, dealing with hurricanes and water versus somebody who would live in the central states. If you live in Jakarta, you will know that they're suffering from rising water levels and it's one of the fastest sinking cities. In fact, they're looking to move the capital city south to Borneo as parts of the city are sinking two and a half meters a decade. This highlights at a high level some of the real challenges associated with climate change and in particular the risks and challenges post our infrastructure and society. From a heat perspective, you know, I don't know if you know this, but 1% of the world's surface today is classified as being in an extreme heat zone that's unsuitable for habitation. Over the next 50 years, we think that number is going to rise to something like 20%. So climate migration, whether it's related to rising water or hotter temperatures, are a real issue. Through our research, we've become more convinced that climate-related migration will contribute to or exacerbate existing resource conflicts, domestic socioeconomic and policy weakness, and extremist activity in unstable regions. It's also becoming clear that we need to invest in adaptation measures and more resilient solutions that will help all of us cope with the immediate and emerging impacts of climate change, things like air conditioning, air purifications, and technologies to help us upgrade the electrical grid. Data and models on the topic don't provide a complete picture, 
Um, but, but as we've been talking about, the world does need to think non-linearly and long-term. Now, this, the second area of focus uh, for us was on the topic of water scarcity. I'll just give you a little bit of background on this for a minute. Um, you know, we, we chose this theme because our research indicated that water scarcity can have a profound humanitarian and economic consequence. Members of our team believe that water is underpriced. I mean, think about it for one minute. When you're listening to a company talk about um, their cost of goods sold, has anyone ever talked about the, the cost of water um, in their cost of goods sold equation? And in a world in the future where demand for water will increase by 1.7 times by 2030, um, how you think about water is really important and how you price it is gonna be critical if, if the projections for both population and economic growth remain on track. I'll highlight you know, a couple of other data points to just help you think through this issue and why it's so important. You know, in Brazil, two thirds of the hospitalizations are due to poor water quality. Americans use 88 gallons of water a day. In India, that number is less than half. Just think about it. If, if water becomes scarce, the world is getting hotter. You know, have we correctly put the right price on water? Do we have enough water? Will we have enough water if rainfall patterns vary significantly in the future with either too much or too much or too little? So these are all the questions that, um, that we have really focused on as an industry. If we think long-term, and help the companies deal with some of these issues, we think we'll be able to have a, a better future. And it's so interesting that people could make decisions now that might affect their water use five, 10, 15 years in the future. It's not, it's not something you can probably, at least not comfortably change at the last minute, but, but if you've got a little time, right. Fascinating. You've also mentioned a theme around systems um, and in that you included cryptocurrency. One, that this is one of these things where there's a wide range of opinions in the investment world from this is the future to this is a lot of noise. It's just another payment system. It's just like another currency. It doesn't really change things too much. So what, what, do, you, what do you think? What, what are the conclusions from future themes on crypto? Well, you, the, the key point to your question was, what are our conclusions? And, and I think we can have answers for, um, for all the different uh, questions that you asked. I'm just not sure if any of us have enough to know what the, the right answer is going to be. But let, let me walk you through a little bit of how we're thinking about it. So as you mentioned, cryptocurrency really falls under the systems theme. And the systems theme was really focused on financial systems, so traditional currencies, central banks, capital markets and the centralized ecosystem in which assets are valued, stored, and transferred between parties. One of the work streams, the one in which you're asking about, really asked the question, what will it take for crypto to become a viable asset class? And as you noted in, in your question, there, this was an area of, of great debate. If you start at a pretty high level, crypto, currencies, the blockchain, NFTs or non-fungible tokens, are all really challenging all market participants to think about market structure and investing differently. The common thread between all these innovations really revolves around changing the infrastructure of our financial ecosystem and really reducing the frictional elements related to the transfer of money. The punchline here is money moves slowly. 
if you think about it, how long does it take for, for those that still write checks today for that check to clear? Or if you're transferring money around the world, or if you want to even close on a house. So the pace of money changing hands has in many senses lagged that of other innovations. So I start with this just because like the internet, which started out as primarily a place to get data and innovation and has subsequently evolved to help us lead our lives. The future of crypto isn't totally clear, but we do know that it has the potential to really transform the financial ecosystem and traditional finance as we know it today. So a couple of other points I'll just share. Um, you know, we do believe that the blockchain has potentially vast implications for several aspects of the economy and society. Technical developments can transform money as we know it today. Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies can potentially become a new asset class. Central bank digital currencies will likely be introduced in many countries over the next five years. So understanding how and to what extent they can be disruptive is gonna be essential. Um, and our infrastructure right now, as it relates to money is slow, complex and inefficient. So there's a real opportunity for cryptocurrency and the blockchain to play a role. And, and while there's a number of unanswered questions that many of people are wrestling with, from as basic as what is Bitcoin, what is a cryptocurrency, to how do you value it if it doesn't generate cash flow, to do I understand it, how is my investment protected, to how is it regulated? You know, all of these are real questions that, that we need to face. And of course, the headlines around crypto from fraud to money laundering and hacking isn't, isn't helpful for building trust in it as an asset class. But, but we're fairly certain that the processes and structure around money and the transfer of money are ripe to be, are ripe to be transformed. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna answer your question um, now. You asked, is it an asset class? I'll just give you a couple of high level thoughts on how we think about it. I mentioned we're really early on in the innovation and evolution. So based on what we see today, we do believe that cryptocurrencies does have the potential to be a viable store and transfer of value. In our view, positive returns, stabilizing volatility and low correlation to other assets make a strong case for, for Bitcoin's role as a store of value um, and a distinct asset class going forward. When you think about the store of value concept, think about companies like Tesla um, putting it on their balance sheet and insurance companies like Mass Mutual investing 100 million into it. Um, we do think that long-term investors in the future could see it become a part of their broader portfolios with, with a 5% strategic allocation. So we don't, we, there are a lot of questions, as I mentioned, a lot of them still need to be answered. This is why it's on our research agenda. Um, we have a commitment to, to keep doing research in this area because we do think it's so important. And we expect that, um, you know, progressively over time, you'll have more access, specialization, and sophistication around this topic. Well, it's a fascinating topic, and it also ties in um, with uh, you know, some of the geopolitical issues you mentioned before, and there's just, it, it, the, the implications are, are, are broad. Um, I'll be interested to, to follow that one. Uh, one other area that you talked about a little bit is, um, a question about is the definition of economic success changing? I mean, obviously, dollars, cents, crypto, but all of those things are um, are money. Is uh, is is there uh, is this idea that success is uh, is going to be defined differently 
particularly among uh, newer generations. Um, is, is that true or, 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 or not? Well, how you, how you measure economic success, we, we do think is, is ripe for changing. Um, you know, if you think about GDP as a measure of progress, um, it just seems less and less relevant to people today. It's probably hardly a surprise as it was originally devised as a measure of output change for largely industrial economies. In a world today where services and intangibles are such a large economic focus, it does do a poor job of explaining the dynamics of a national economy. In addition, it doesn't really tell us anything about how equitable, inclusive, sustainable, or productive the growth has been. So we do think that there are gonna be newer dimensions um, that are gonna become increasingly important to citizens and policymakers. Um, when you think about how we're measuring economic um, success in the future. Um, you know, you think about the disconnect that's really grown between what's important in people's daily lives, you know, improving living standards, access to essential services, social mobility, equity of opportunity, sustainability, and, and productive use of resources, and the measures of, of growth policymakers prioritize. There, there's a real disconnect. And, and that disconnect can in part explain some of the political tension of the past decade. And via future themes, you know, we could hear insights into, into the challenge. Um, you're looking forward, we do see great opportunity in investing in the enablers of a new form of economic progress, one more aligned with positive societal outcomes. I think that one of the, the challenges of GDP has always been that it values paid work, but not unpaid work. And that has been a, a flaw that has been pointed out for, I don't know, 50 years, but perhaps uh, perhaps in the COVID or hopefully maybe post-COVID era, that, that would change. Um, but as you look forward, how long do you think these themes last? I mean, one of the things that's interesting about the themes that you talked about from a while ago, you know, the, the prior decades is at some point they become clear, right? Um, so how do you um, how do you actually build an investment portfolio around these themes, given that, you know, crises always always happen, things get things get in the way? How, how do you how do you uh, how, how do they last? How do you how do you really put them to, to work? Yeah, well, it's, um, it, it's not easy, because as you say, sometimes you, you can do a lot of this great research and, and having a way to express it in your portfolios. Um, it, it can be difficult, particularly if it's not something the market is focused on today. So the themes within future themes are, are, are meant to be long-term and diverse. Uh, these two characteristics are really important for anyone thinking about you know, thematic investing, which is um, what future themes is all about. Um, you know, the investment themes, which have lower levels of cycle sensitivity, and, and combine you know, lowly correlated themes in a portfolio can be in, it can be an interesting way to build exposure next to long-term structural changes. You know, we have portfolios at Wellington that are, are seeking to do this. And so while I would hesitate to say that they will fully withstand you know, whatever crisis we meet next, um, you know, we do think that we've got um, ways in which to build good exposures around these diversifying elements. And it's a way for us to share differentiated long-term insights with our clients. 
That's that that's really helpful. And then just coming back to a little bit where we we started, um, you know, how do you how do you try to put aside the noise of the day as an investor? Because it's so you know, you said the price movements, it's, it's so it's, it's addictive, it's magnetic, it's you, you, you have to look, there's this gravitational pull. Um, but, you know, are there incentives that either your clients or leaders of asset management firms can provide to do a longer term focus? We've obviously done work on um, the incentives that a, a client gives an asset manager or executive compensation, those sorts of things. But what sort of things do you think um, leaders can do to, to try to elongate that focus. Sure. Um, and it is, it, it is so hard because the here and now of the markets, it, it is a pull. Um, but, but we do think long-term um, great results really revolve around um, thinking creatively and setting your own research agenda, enabling yourself the time to perform the research on the agenda to set yourself up, not only for in your own portfolios, but to help the companies and your clients um, driving change. So there are a couple of things to think about. So one you mentioned is incentive compensation. You know, we do think that the more um, asset management firms can align their compensation with longer term time horizons, the better off that you'll see, you'll see more of the ideas really um, move in, in that direction. So we do spend most of our time or our compensation is really geared to a three and five year rolling alpha within um, research at, at Wellington. So that's one way that you can really try to drive change. Um, another way um, that, that we're thinking about it is, you know, we have an early career program. And so other um, asset managers that have similar programs to the extent that you can add in a rotation that is really specifically focused on researching um, long-term you know, thematic ideas like those that we've discussed here, we think do go a long way to ingraining the importance of long-term thinking in the earlier career cohort. It gives them an opportunity to really collaborate broadly. Um, it, it, reinforces the idea that you can do a lot of good deep research and might not always lead to a conclusion and that's okay because you're setting yourself up to, to benefit from experience over time and it will help them really show sometimes that what might seem like a crazy idea early on actually could materialize into something pretty powerful so so if there's a way for people to incorporate thinking long-term into their early career programs, that, that could be really impactful. And when you think about retention of talent and recruitment of talent, um, remember when we started talking, this earlier career cohort are those that are really passionate about really bringing into balance and focus, you know, purpose and progress and alpha. And so, so the extent that we can embed more of that in our day-to-day, -day, I do think it will help from a um, talent retention perspective. Um, so those are some of the ideas that, that we've been thinking about and toying with as, as a way to ensure that we're focusing people on the long-term. Yeah, no, that, that is uh, 
all of those things sort of reinforce the the long-term headline if you will because they're you know or sustainability or esg anything can be can look great on the cover but if you don't have the the reinforcing mechanisms underneath um it doesn't quite last well this is um i i think it's it's fascinating work and and it is both as you said um Sort of good discipline to take that step back and get away from the markets for for a day, but also very inspiring. Right? I mean, I think as you think about some of these future themes, some of them are scary and challenging, like the climate-driven um, migration, for example. That that is uh, that that's a challenging problem, and some of them are more um, optimistic, perhaps, about new technologies and 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 other things that that solve. Um, problem. So, as as you as you look across the whole spectrum, how, how do you feel at the end of it? Do you feel like, um, wow, I'm pretty optimistic about the place we're going, or are there lots of opportunities for differentiation? Or um, glad we glad we learned it, glad we understand it better than we did. How, how does it make you feel when you get to the end of this project? Well, I think I think you feel a sense of relief getting to the end of the project, but really getting to the end of the project is is the beginning of or, or the continuation of, of the research. And I, I think if there's one thing we know for certain, it's markets um, and the world are, are always evolving. And so how you um, how you as an individual or as a company keep pace with that to enable um, to enable clients to generate alpha and or to drive change in, in society and the world more broadly is critical. So it, it is inspiring. It is a lot of work. You know, when you think about just evolutions, we talked about over time, you know, it, it's, it's not going to stop. And so, so we do get excited. We love the enthusiasm of the entire firm coming together around this really important topic. We love the idea of setting a research agenda early um, and that, that gives us confidence that um, whatever the future holds, we will be able to work with clients and companies to, to try to navigate it. Right, right. Well, thank you for, for this work, for this inspiration um, and for your time today. I really appreciate it, Mary. Thank you, it's great to be here. Thanks for listening to today's episode of Going Long with FCLT Global. Be sure to hit subscribe to get new episodes every other Monday. To learn more, visit our website at fcltglobal.org.